verse 2 says, The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Let's pray. God, we, we love you and we acknowledge and celebrate this morning that your works are great. God, as we think about the text that will be preached from Romans 7, we, we praise you that you have delivered us from this body of death. Uh, we feel the struggle and the fight against sin and the desire to please you and to follow you. Um, and God, we thank you that you deliver us from the penalty of sin even now so that we can be free from guilt and shame and that uh, one day soon we will be uh, completely free of the presence of sin. Uh, and we thank you that we're free of the, its power now. So I pray, Father, that this morning we'd be encouraged even as we see uh, the picture of the gospel in baptism and as we consider now how you've brought the good news to us in your, through your word in English, God, I pray that you fill our hearts with, uh, with joy as we marvel at your great works. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this this week. For Gen Z Christians, I think that's the youngest of us, um, we might suppose that the ancientness of Christianity would drag a dry and impractical message to the 21st century. But the opposite is true. Instead, of Christ instead, Christianity's truth is made evident by its enduring freshness throughout the ages as the gospel transcends every imaginable hurdle, contextualized to every environment and time period. The story of the church did not begin with us and it will not end with us, but if we want to build a better future, we must learn to excavate the past. Um, that's reflecting on just how useful uh, church history is for us as modern-day Christians. And as we're considering how we got the Bible, we have looked at this question theologically. What does the Bible say about itself? How does it present itself to us? We've also looked through the, the story of the Bible itself and how it tells us it was written. And now we're looking through uh, church history to try to excavate the past, as that article says, uh, to see how God's word came to us. And since we speak English, uh, we're currently in that part of church history and in that part of the world where they speak English. And we're thinking about how the Bible was translated into English. And so we're following the story through England. And the plan for this morning is for Tom to come up and to finish uh, telling us about Tyndale and his first translation of the Bible from, uh, from the Greek text into English and the first printing of the English Bible. And then after Tom's finished, uh, then I'll come up and talk about other English Bible translations leading up to the King James. So Tom, I'll invite you to come on up and take it from here. Yeah, so last Sunday we uh, moved rather rapidly through the life of William Tyndale, and that's appropriate because William Tyndale lived a life on the move. Uh, we left off in 1536 with his execution, but I didn't really get a chance to talk much about his translation itself. Some things to note, we had already uh, noted that this was the first translation that was directly from the Hebrew and Greek and this was the first uh, into English, and this was the first uh, time that uh, the English, the Bible was um, printed mechanically. We talked about the uh, Gutenberg press and that uh, legacy. So let me look first of all at the New Testament that uh, Tyndale produced. Uh, first in 1525, uh, 
in Cologne, and it, you might remember it was begun to be printed there, and then Tyndale had to flee, and then the whole thing was printed uh, in Worms in 1526. So some things to note about this, uh, the sources for the New Testament. Um, he translated mainly from Erasmus's uh, new Greek uh, text. Uh, Josh talked last time about Erasmus, and you remember, I think it was in 1516 that that was produced, and so Tyndale is using that as he is translating the Bible into English, and he actually uses the third edition of that. I think there were four editions uh, produced uh, maybe during Erasmus's lifetime. Um, he also is using Luther's German New Testament, so appropriate that we talk about that today. Uh, Luther, uh, who after he um, has the di Diet of Worms, goes to Wartburg and translates the Bible into the German language. And as a linguist, Tyndale knows German and is using that as a source uh, as well. And he actually uses that a lot for even some of the notes that are included in the uh, English Bible. He is also using Erasmus's new Latin text. You might remember Josh showed the picture of the Greek and the Latin together, and so he's using both of those, uh, Latin, the, the updated Latin text, not uh, Jerome's Vulgate. One thing that it's important to note that he did not use was John Wycliffe's New Testament. So Wycliffe had translated the Bible, uh, I think from the Vulgate to the English language, but he is not Tyndale is not using that at all as a source in this. He doesn't have access to the copy, it appears, but he's, so it's really not relying on that earlier English translation. Some things about the structure, uh, as we mo noted before, Tyndale always has in mind the plowboy, all right, the, the everyday speaker of the English language. He's thinking about that in his word choice. He uh, often uses simple one-syllable words over multi-syllable words for ease of reading and uh, understanding. He often uses uh, words that have Anglo-Saxon origin rather than the Norman or the Latin origin. So thinking again of the, the everyday person and their understanding as they read. His style, we mentioned briefly last time, the attention to the, the rhythm of the words. Uh, there is kind of a, a lyrical quality that we see in the King James, which is 80, 85% based off of Tyndale's work. But one thing I want us to remember that Tyndale is aiming at the, the substance, making sure that the substance is being communicated clearly. This is just a little a prologue that uh, from the, I think, the Worm, Worms uh, New Testament. He says, give diligence, reader, I exhort you that you come with a pure mind and as the scripture says, with a single eye, unto the words of health and of eternal life, by the which, if we repent and believe them, we are born anew, created afresh, and enjoy the fruits of the blood of Christ. It has purchased life, love, favor, grace, blessing, and whatsoever is promised in the scriptures to them that believe and obey God. And it was Christ's blood that stands between us and wrath, vengeance, and curse. Again. Not an academic exercise, although very academic and scholarly in his work, but uh, his main purpose here is to communicate the truths of the scripture. I want to speak real quick about the format, uh, which I always think of when I'm working at Bible Visuals. We have to think about the substance, but also the format to get this into the people's hands. Uh, in our case, teachers. Uh, in 
Tyndale's uh, case, he, uh, the Worms New Testament was printed in an octavo format, which was uh, 16 pages on eight sheets, so front and back, eight sheets. And this was actually a smaller um, size to the New Testament than uh, I think his earlier one at Cologne. And it was easier to hide. Uh, remember that these were illegal to have, and as they were smuggled into England, um, this smaller size would lend it to being able to be hidden uh, more easily. It was also a good deal. It was about a, uh, one shilling and eight pence to purchase a copy of the Worms New Testament, um, which was about a week and a half's wages for the common laborer. Um, let me speak real quickly of the Old Testament, which he did later on. Um, his sources for that, the Hebrew Old Testament, which he could get access to from the uh, um, bookshops there in Antwerp, where he did a lot of this work. He uses Johannes Reuchlin's Hebrew textbook, uh, Master Linguist, so he has access to that. He also has access to some other uh, Aramaic or uh, languages from that region of the, the world, uh, Aramaic study tools. He's using Luther's Old Testament translation. So Luther was able to translate the Old Testament into Greek, and um, Tyndale uses that. And he also uses sermons or commentaries by Ulrich Zwingli, um, the, who studied the Hebrew language. So he's using that all in his use of translating the uh, Old Testament. And remember, he gets the Pentateuch, and he gets uh, the book of Jonah, and then some of the books of history he gets from uh, Joshua up to Second Chronicles when he is captured, taken away, and executed. So he's never able to get the old, whole Old Testament done, but we'll see that it leaves a legacy that others make use of. Um, he, uh, let me just comment that he coins a whole min bunch of words that are common nowadays for us. Remember, this is a, a, a way of uh, bringing the English language into uh, some structure and format. So some of the uh, phrases that are common to us nowadays, like knock and it shall be open unto you, a moment in time, uh, seek and ye shall find, the salt of the earth, these are all phrases that we find their origin in Tyndale's translation. Um, there are particular words that he uses, and I don't want to take uh, a whole lot of time, I want to turn this over to Josh, but one of those words that he coins that we still use today is the word thanksgiving. So I thought that would be appropriate way to think about that. Not only thanksgiving for the work that God accomplished through William Tyndale, but as we gather here next month, uh, tomorrow for Thanksgiving, remind yourself of that as you think of William Tyndale. Any questions about Tyndale? We're about to move on from Tyndale's story, but Tom would love to answer your questions about Tyndale if you have any. Again, it's hard to overstate the impact of somebody like a Tyndale. You know, so uh, as Tom mentioned, 80 to 85 percent, it's estimated, of what we have in the King James is uh, you can find originating in Tyndale's version of the New Testament. If you kind of lay them side by side, you can see uh, so many familiar words and phrases. And again, of course, it's because the, the underlying text, right, the Greek and the Hebrew, 
that are being worked from are the same. But it's those, it's those phrases, even words like thanksgiving or fruit of the vine or give up the ghost. Uh, Tyndale's the one, like he could have used different words there. He could have said give up the spirit, but you know, he, he said give up the ghost. Um, and so there's a, a huge impact in that way, but also just um, his commitment uh, for the Bible to be in our language. Um, God used that in such a huge way for us to get the Bible. And so that's something that we can be thankful for. Yeah, Chuck. Yeah, so I'm not super familiar. Do you, do you have an answer for that, Tom? I have a guess. So as an English word, it sounds like maybe that word didn't exist until he put the two things together. So maybe thankfulness or thanks might have been in use. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times in Bible translating, so and I'm guessing this may be what happened here. A lot of times in Bible translating, not just English, but into other languages, you know, you sometimes you have to find a way to express what's in the Greek or the Hebrew text. And sometimes we know I mean, entire alphabets and grammars have been constructed to translate the Bible. Um, and so as translators are trying to figure out how do I express this biblical word or idea, how can I express that? And so it sounds like Tyndale is putting that together. So we can give thanks for that. Any other questions about Tyndale? All right. So um, let's talk about what happened after Tyndale uh, and before the King James Bible. So you'll remember that for much of church history, we have occasional Bible translations popping up in different countries as Christianity spread. But in the Western church, you'll remember, right, translation work slowed way down after the Vulgate was completed in 405. In 405, like in the late 300s and early 400s, Latin was the language being spoken by people in the Roman Empire in the West, but eventually that faded away. Um, we talked about that last week. Uh, but then we have, if you look through the history of Bible translation, we have kind of two explosions in Bible translations. The second explosion uh, began in the early 1900s, really the late 1800s, around 1898. Uh, but it continues through today. I mean, there's just so many Bible translations that have been produced. I'm not just talking about English, um, but including English and other uh, languages. There's been a lot of Bible translation work being done in the last 125 years. Um, but the first explosion in Bible translations started uh, when the printing press happened in the in 1450 when the printing press was invented and continued through the mid-1600s. So the mid-1400s to the mid-1600s, there's a lot of Bible translation work being done before it slows down again. So to situate us in that timeline, again, right, we're, we're uh, picking up after Tyndale. Tyndale produced his New Testament in 1525, and then he was martyred in 1536. And then after Tyndale, we have several English translations being published. Um, 
and most of those are not authorized, and they're technically illegal. Uh, you remember, after Wycliffe, uh, by hand, translated the Vulgate into English, um, he created kind of a firestorm of Reformation thinking that pushed back against Roman Catholic doctrine. And so Bibles in English, after Wycliffe, were made illegal. Uh, and that's why Tyndale's work was illegal, and all these other things were also illegal. So sometimes these new translations were collected and burned, depending on who was on the throne in England. Most of the time, uh, they were being translated and printed on the European continent. In other words, they're not being printed in England. People are having to leave England, just like Tyndale. This is what Tyndale did, and lots of other people had to do this too. They would leave England, translate the Bible into English, print it somewhere else in Germany, Switzerland, somewhere else, and then they would smuggle it back into England. Uh, so that's kind of the, the form, the way that the, the English Bible was being translated. And the, the story of the English Bible is very much wrapped in, up in the politics of England in the 1500s, which is crazy, uh, to put it simply. Um, what, hap what was going on in England uh, for, in the 1500s uh, is like a soap opera. Um, and that, that little book that I recommended um, that we have in the bookstall, The Unquenchable Flame, uh, has a great chapter on the kings and queens of England in the 1500s and how that impacted the church. And it, it of course, it impacts um, Bible translation. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but I do want to give you something about what was happening in, with the kings and queens in England because it impacts how the Bible was being translated. So, um, so King Henry VIII, uh, if you know anything about kings and queens in the 1500s, you might have heard of K King Henry VIII. Uh, he took the throne in 1509, and he was king for a while, through 1547. And uh, let's just say he had a problem with commitment. Um, he was married six times. Um, and there's a mnemonic device that historians use to remember kind of what happened to his wives. Um, and it goes like this, if I can get it right. His first wife, it goes, divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Um, that's what happened to all of his wives. Um, so he divorced two of them. Two of them were beheaded. One died and one survived. And then his children uh, from various wives take the throne after him. And to put it briefly, I mean, some of them are Protestant and some of them are Catholic. And they keep switching back and forth. And so England just goes through this tremendous upheaval as these kings and queens keep taking each other's place. So Henry, you know, the way it gets started is that Henry, he's married, and uh, he wants to have that marriage annulled, um, but he needs papal approval, uh, and he doesn't get it. He needs the Roman Catholic Pope to annul his marriage so that he can marry somebody else, and the Pope won't approve it. So conveniently... The theologians in England determine uh, that, uh, that Joseph of Arimathea actually started the first church in England. That I don't know how historical this actually is, but basically they, they make an argument that England is not subject to Rome and that the church in England is older than the church in Rome, as a matter of fact. And so King Henry says, well, that's great. So that means I'm in charge now. Uh, and in 1534, they pass a law, Parliament passes a law called the Act of Supremacy, which means that the King of England is supreme, even over the Pope. And now the King or Queen, whoever's wearing the crown in England, is now the head of the church in England. 
and that's super convenient uh, for Henry. Now he can get his marriage annulled, and he marries someone else. Um, and that, even though, so and we need to make this distinction, though, even though that's when the Church of England, or Anglicanism, that's uh, when that was started or launched, but even though that separated them from Rome in authority, that did not necessarily separate them from Rome theologically or doctrinally or in their practice. So King Henry, even though he didn't like Rome and separated from Rome, was not a Protestant. He did not like Luther. Uh, King Henry knew about Luther and wrote a tract against Luther, and before they split from Rome, the Pope appreciated it so much he called King Henry the defender of the faith. Um, so, um, so we just need to understand that even though the Church of England separated from Rome, theologically they're not Protestant at that point. But when King Henry dies, the successor to the throne is his young son, Edward. And Edward ruled from 1547 to 1553, and Edward is a Protestant. Edward has been educated by Protestants, and he is Protestant by conviction. And so Edward brings about reforms in the English church and appoints Protestant authorities in the church, and a lot of Protestants enjoy a period of freedom during Edward's reign. But then Edward dies young, and his sister Mary takes the throne in 1553, and Mary is a Roman Catholic. And Mary is very angry at all this Protestant stuff happening, and uh, she has a lot of people killed. We'll talk about one of them. Mary, you may know her as Bloody Mary. Uh, she, she has so many Protestants killed uh, that she earns that title of Bloody Mary. But then Mary dies, and her sister, Elizabeth, takes the throne. And Elizabeth is a Protestant. Uh, and Elizabeth reigns for a long time, from 1558 to 1603. And Elizabeth is also kind of a, uh, she's a, she's a very effective and savvy politician. So one of the things that Elizabeth does is she realizes all that England's been through uh, with uh, breaking from Rome and then having Protestant influence under Edward and then Roman Catholic persecution under Mary. And Elizabeth, in a lot of ways, is trying to bring people back together, to bring stability and order. And it's, in a large measure, she's very effective at doing that. Uh, but she is formally uh, Protestant. And so Elizabeth rules all the way up to 1603, and she does not have an heir. And in 1603, because she doesn't have an heir, that's when King James from Scotland comes down and rules over England and Scotland. Um, and we'll talk about James next week when we talk about uh, the King James translation. But um, there's lots more. I'm skipping so much stuff. Uh, there's lots of fascinating stuff that happens with King Henry and all of his kids and wives. Um, and while all that's happening, people are translating the Bible into English that whole time. And they're meeting with more or less success or more or less favorable circumstances while they're working to translate the Bible. And it's appropriate here for us to just pause and reflect. And we don't have to think about this too much these days in our context, but there are plenty of places in the world right now where this is still a challenge, where the politics of the, the, of the country make Bible translation very difficult or impossible, or situations where the Bible has to be smuggled in, just like what was happening in England in the 1500s. And so this is an occasion for us 
to be thankful and to pray for these other parts of the world, to pray for the work of Bible translation and to pray that the Bible be able to spread uh, even where it's currently not legal. Um, so what I want to do now is just I want to mention some highlights, some of, the, some of the main Bible translations that lead us up to the King James, that are after Tyndale and, and lead us up to the King James. And I'm not going to identify every translation into English during this time period. You, so I want you to know there are other English Bibles being translated during this time period, but I'm just not going to talk about all of them. Uh, I want to talk about some of them that, that make an impact or affect our Bibles or the story of the Bible in a significant way. So, first, I want to talk about the Coverdale Bible. So, I'll, I'll talk through these and then I'll pause. So, what you're looking at on the screen is the Coverdale Bible. This was, uh, this was produced by Miles Coverdale um, in 1535. So, this is the year right before Tyndale dies. Um, and Coverdale did some of the translating work for this. This translation is not authorized, uh, but it is tolerated. In other words, it's not banned and it's, it's not burned. But it's really ironic that this Bible would be tolerated because the New Testament in this Bible is Tyndale's translation. And so is the Pentateuch. That's Tyndale's too. Um, so Coverdale used Tyndale's work for a lot of this Bible. And then he did some translating work for the parts that he didn't have from Tyndale. Um, this was uh, the first complete Bible printed in English. And again, because just to give some nuances here, right, Tyndale did the New Testament, and then he did the Pentateuch, and then uh, he did some other parts of the Old Testament, but he didn't finish it. Uh, and this is the first completed printed Bible in English. Coverdale was the first one to put the Apocrypha in an appendix. Okay, so... In English Bibles, he put the Apocrypha all the way at the end in an appendix. And so from here on out, if an English Protestant Bible included the Apocrypha at all, and a lot of them did, including the King James, it would be in an appendix at the end. Uh, so this is uh, Coverdale's Bible in 1535. And um, one of the things that I'll, I'll take the time to point this out now is you'll notice here that even though you have that chapter number, you don't have verses. Uh, and if I would have gone back, I mean, Tyndale didn't have verses. We'll get to where the verses come in. Um, but I just want to point out that as things are developing, um, you, you can see that things happen. The Bibles are being updated, changes, things are being added. Uh, so here, just notice that there are no verse divisions. Uh, so in 1535, and even for Tyndale's in 1525, they don't have verses at that point. Uh, and the font that they're using is still a a harder-to-read font uh, for them back then and for us today. We'll see that's going to change pretty soon in these Bibles. The next Bible in 1537, this is the year after Tyndale died, another Bible was produced called the Matthews Bible. So this Bible was published with the translator identified as Thomas Matthew, but it, we're almost certain that that's a pseudonym. That's a fake name. It's, a, it's just a pen name. We're, um, because, and the reason that somebody might want to do that kind of thing, right, is because, remember, Bibles in English are still illegal. Um, we're pretty sure that this Bible was uh, produced by Tyndale's friend, John Rogers. Um, and there are some clues that, um, that John Rogers, after Tyndale died, that he had access, because he was friends with Tyndale, he had access to some of his unpublished translation work in the Old Testament. 
And so he, he collected Tyndale's unpublished work and then finished it and published it. So at the end of the Old Testament, uh, it's really hard to tell what you're looking at at the bottom of the screen there. But at the bottom of the screen, that's a W and a T. Um, and that's all you have there. And it's pretty obvious that that represents William Tyndale. Um, and that's at the end of the Old Testament. So his, this, that page, you know, the Old Testament parts that he translated hadn't been published yet. So Rogers collected those, published them under the name of Thomas Matthew, and then, but then kind of put a WT in there at the end of the Old Testament. Um, during the reign of King Edward, Rogers, remember Edward was a Protestant, Rogers would do a lot of work and, and experience some, some liberty. But when Edward died and Mary took the throne, um, John Rogers was arrested. And in February of 1555, John Rogers was burned at the stake. And he was the first Protestant martyr under Mary. Um, and so an another reminder to us of the cost of people doing this work, of putting the Bible into English. Tyndale gave his life, and John Rogers, his friend, also gave his life. Then in 1539, so this is just a couple of years later, um, another Bible was produced called the Great Bible. I'll talk about why it was called that in, in a second, but this translation was overseen by Miles Coverdale. Yes, the same Miles Coverdale who published a Bible four years earlier in 1535. So one of the things to note here, right, is that, that the same translators often rework their own translations, and they cooperate with others to improve their translations. So from 1540 to 1541, the Great Bible went through six revisions in the English that resulted in six uh, published editions that would vary from each other uh, to one degree or another. That term great, uh, the great Bible, comes from the size of the Bible. Again, uh, Tom mentioned that Tyndale's Bible was small uh, so that it could be smuggled. This Bible was not small. Uh, this Bible, the pages were 15 by 10 inches. Um, so this is a, a hulking book, not easy to carry around. This book, the reason I'm mentioning it to you, one of the reasons, is that this is the first English Bible that is authorized. Uh, so this Bible is not illegal. Um, and uh, when I was preparing for the class, I could, I could read what was up there and I didn't put it in the notes. I think this, this is the cover page. I think it says something like, the Bible in English, that is to say, the content of all the Holy Scriptures, both of the Old and New Testament, truly translated after the verity of the Hebrew and Greek texts by diligent study of several excellent learned men, expert in the uh, lay tongues, maybe, is what it says. Anyway, presented to the church or something like that. Anyway, the, here's another cover page for it later. This cover page says at the, at the, toward the bottom, it says, this is the Bible appointed to the use of the churches. So this is the first Bible that is authorized in English for use in the Church of England. Uh, and so that's a big deal. This is the first authorized English translation. It's not the last, um, but it is the first. Um, many English early Bibles, including Tyndale. Remember, Tyndale is very influenced by Luther. As Tom mentioned, Tyndale used Luther's German translation of the New Testament. And so Tyndale, following Luther, put 
Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation at the end of the New Testament. That's not our order. Um, so Luther wasn't sure about the canonicity or if, if Hebrew, James, Jude, and Revelation were a part of the Bible, were a part of the New Testament. So Luther put them at the end. Tyndale put them at the end. Um, but the Great Bible broke that pattern. And instead, the Great Bible followed Erasmus's order of the New Testament. And that order would persist in subsequent English translations down to today. You have your New Testament in the order that you have it, not because of Tyndale, not because of Luther, but because of this Bible, uh, which follows Erasmus's New Testament. Um, and uh, it's a separate conversation about why those books are organized the way they are, but I'm happy to talk about that if you have questions about it. All right, this is the last one I'm going to uh, talk about, and then I'll, I'll pause for questions. Um, the Geneva Bible in 1560. Oh, I lied. There's two more that I'm going to talk about, and then I'll pause. Um, so the Geneva Bible was made in 1560. So remember, so from 1553 to 1558, Protestants were being heavily persecuted and killed by Mary. Um, and many of them fled England for the continent of Europe, somewhere on Europe to find refuge. And remember, in this time, the Reformation's going crazy in Europe. I mean, there you got Luther in Germany, and, and you've got Reformation in Switzerland, and the, the princes, the kings, the queens, they're starting to embrace the Reformation and break from Roman rule. Um, and so they're finding refuge uh, on the continent. Many of the Protestants who fled from Europe wound up in Geneva in Switzerland, where John Calvin uh, was leading in the church there and ministering. And in Geneva, the English Protestants produced a Bible translation that we call the Geneva Bible. And there's several fascinating changes or innovations that come into the English Bible uh, with this production. In essence, it's the first study Bible in English. Um, and one of the reasons that I chose this picture of the Geneva Bible is to show you. I mean, this is, this is the text. This is somewhere, I think this is Deuteronomy. And you can see there's lots of pictures uh, in the text. Uh, there would be charts and graphs and maps and there were a lot of notes. Uh, there were a lot of study notes, theological comments, or textual explanations in there. The, the text um, was in a different font. It was in a, ironically, it was in a Roman font. Uh, and that was the first time that an English Bible would use this kind of font um, rather than the more flowery font that you'll see in other translations that we've already looked at in pictures. Uh, it was the first English Bible to have numbered verses. Uh, and this, these translators, they didn't make that up. Um, that actually is introduced in a Greek Bible, but they follow the, the Greek Bible. Um, and in the Old Testament, I'm not exactly sure how they introduced the verses, if that was coming from a Hebrew text or uh, if they were just adding it in. But this is the first English Bible that has versification. Um, and uh, you can see, I, I hope you can see, that all these innovations are designed to make the Bible more accessible to the common reader. They're trying to make the text easier to read, even in the font, even in adding the verses. That's what the verses are for. It's to make finding your place easier and memorization easier so that you can know where you're at in the text. Um, and again, I mentioned that uh, famously, you know, the Geneva Bible was full of study notes. And these notes were a big part of what made it beloved by Protestants and hated by Catholics. Um, so, for instance, 
a study note in Revelation said that the Antichrist is the Pope, the king of heretics, and Satan's ambassador. It's not too hard to figure out why Roman Catholics wouldn't appreciate that kind of note. Um, there's another note that caused a problem uh, for authorities and kings and queens. So here's, here's that note. In, in Exodus 1.19, you remember that story in Exodus 1, Pharaoh told all the midwives to kill the male children, and they don't do it. And there's a study note in the Geneva Bible that says that the midwives were right and moral and ethical to reject Pharaoh's rule. Now, can anybody guess why that might cause a problem? This is a real question. Like, raise your hand if you think you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the kings didn't like that. And yeah, Kathy gave it away. So the kings didn't like that. And King James didn't like that. Uh, King James knew about and used the Geneva Bible. Um, but the kings and queens and people in power didn't like that kind of note that would say that it was sometimes moral and ethical and right to disobey authorities. Um, so uh, we'll pick that up again when we get to the story of the King James Bible. Uh, because, in fact, the Geneva Bible was the Bible that James used prior to 1611, even though he didn't appreciate some of the notes. It was also the Bible that was used by Shakespeare or Bunyan, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, the early American settlers, the pilgrims, would have been using the Geneva Bible. Um, Bruce Metzger, he says that the Geneva Bible enjoyed an immediate and widespread reception and usage. So it's very popular. Um, but after 1560, we have an interesting situation in England because the authorized Bible is not the Geneva Bible. It's the Great Bible. That's what's being used in the churches. But most of the English Christians are not using the Great Bible. They're not using the Bible that's authorized. They're using the Geneva Bible from these refugees in Switzerland. So the official church, which is Anglican now, um, and again, we're back in 1568, right? So when I talk about like King James using this, I'm like rewinding about 50 years. Uh, in 1568, you know, the, the official church considers this to be a problem. Uh, and so in 1564, the Archbishop of Canterbury begins a new translation um, that was worked on mostly by bishops or people who had become bishops, and so it's called the Bishop's Bible. Lots of different people had their hands in this pot, so to speak. And so the translation is not consistent. Uh, it's not great. Uh, it's not a great translation as far as translations go. Um, but it becomes the second authorized English Bible in the English language. So the Bishop's Bible takes the place of the Great Bible. And then this, this is the scene, right, in 1568, this is the scene that leads us all the way up, as far as English goes, that leads us all the way up to the King James. By the time in 1604, when you get conversations about a new Bible translation, the main two Bibles that are being used in English are the Bishop's Bible, which is the authorized version being used in the churches, and the Geneva Bible, which is wildly popular among church members and being used by people like Shakespeare. Um, so that's the story kind of in English. I'll mention something about the Greek here in a second, but any questions or comments that you have? Yep, Mike. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I'll answer them in reverse order. So what made them authorized was that the Church of England was the one initiating it and saying, so in the case of um, 
the bishop's Bible, you know, they were saying that the, it was the leadership in the church that was saying we need to do something. Um, and in the case of the great Bible, again, it was the, the English authorities. And again, as you have religious change, right, from breaking with Rome and then Protestant, Catholic Protestant, the, you know, the Protestants would be in favor of having an English Bible. Um, and so through the influence of Protestant theology and a desire to have the Bible in English, that's how you eventually have the church authorities themselves saying, we're going to authorize this. We want this. Whereas in Roman Catholic churches, they don't want that. The Latin is the official language. Yeah, I mean, there's, as far as editions and translations, there would be dozens. Um, yeah. I mean, one that I'm not going to take time to mention, the Dewey Rames Bible, the, the Roman Catholics make kind of a counterpoint English translation. Um, yep, so stuff like that is happening. Any other questions? Yes, Roger. Yeah, it's a great question. So there are, um, there are different, um, mm, how do you say this? Not, I don't know if denomination is the right word. There are different, different structures of Anglican authority um, that I, as far as I'm aware of today. Um, so, and there would be some that I think uh, would hold to the gospel. There'd be a lot that would not, that we'd say would not. It, it, as you move through the 1600s, uh, if you've ever heard of the Puritans, I mean, the, the Puritans, they're trying to further reform the official Church of England. Uh, and so the Church of England, as far as Anglicanism goes, in the, in the 1600s, goes through a lot of change uh, so that they, you know, they don't believe in things like transubstantiation, the veneration of saints, things like that. Um, but structurally, you might look at them and think there's a lot of Roman Catholicism in there. Um, and so, yeah, in some ways, they're, they're flowing more directly out of Roman Catholicism. There's some Puritans that eventually decide this is not reforming enough. And that's where you get the Presbyterian Church, Congregationalism, and Baptists. All kind of, they're Puritans who realize the Anglican Church is not reforming enough. And so they, they're called separatists. They, they separate from the Church of England. And that's where you get kind of those denominations that we could recognize today. Yeah, yeah Tim. The short answer is yes, and German is the easiest one to talk about. Uh, Luther's not the first to translate the Bible into English, but he's the, I think he's the first to use Erasmus as a Greek text. But again, you know, so Tyndale's using Luther as a reference point. And by the time you get, uh, Andy Thompson mentioned this when he was here, by the time you get to the King James Bible, I mean, they're even using the Spanish Bible from 1598. Uh, the King James translators are looking at German translations, and they're looking at Spanish translations, and they're looking at the Greek, and so as a translator, you know, if, if you can work in those languages, you're helped by that, yeah. So there's other things happening, other translations happening, um, and being used, kind of cross-pollinating, yeah. All right, I'll just mention very briefly, and then we're going to stop, um, that the Greek text is being revised all the way along. So um, the Greek text that Erasmus originally um, published, uh, he revises it multiple times, and then um, a guy named Robert Estienne, he revises it multiple times, and then Theodore Beza revises it multiple times, and eventually the King James translators are going to use that, uh, the version that Theodore Beza published when they produced the King James Bible. I'm going to pray. If you have any questions about these things, you're welcome to come talk to me, and then we'll be dismissed.